0: Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts.
1: Coming up on this episode of Killer Jeans, hearing a loved one's voice for the last time.
2: Hey Kelsey, it's Rachel. Just uh, give me a call back when you get this. Uh, if you don't call me back tonight, I'll be home all day tomorrow. So
3: I'll talk to you later. Love you. Bye. A reminder of a life cherished. And now, a family is haunted by the unforeseen.
2: I've been working in healthcare at that point for 13 years. I had never seen anything like that.:
3: Is it obvious who's responsible for murder? Or is a cheating boyfriend deflecting from finding the real killer?? The following episode of Killer Genes" contains graphic and sensitive information and material. Listener discretion is advised.
0: Emmy-nominated true crime journalists bring you cases like you've never heard them before. Hear first-hand accounts from the victims' families, private investigators, lawyers, law enforcement, and even the convicted. Giving you a complete 360 of the case like no one else can.
3: I'm Melissa McCarty. I'm Kelly McClear.
0: And this is Killer Jeans.
1: Rachel Galbraith, at 33 years old, was doe-eyed with a beautiful full smile accompanied by dimpled cheeks and a warm brown shoulder-length hair. Her youthful look reflected her beauty routine, all natural, using homemade products.
2: Rachel was really quiet. She was very peaceful, very resourceful. She didn't make a lot of money. She was just a very simple, simple woman. And she made her own soaps, her own candles, her own I mean, you name it. Anything she used, she made herself, which is pretty admirable.
1: Living in the city of South Holland, Illinois, Rachel was the oldest sibling to her two sisters, Kelsey and Sarah, and a mom to three rescue dogs. The morning of May 9th in 2014, Rachel didn't show up to her dog grooming job. Her friend and co-worker went to check
3: on her. Rachel was found holding her stomach lying face down in a pool of blood. Her hair was wet, and she had reportedly been hit up to 20 times in the head with a blunt force object. Her time of death was 10.37 a.m. At the time, South Holland police suspected it was a crime of passion. Her sister Sarah recalls when she got the call. When did you learn that something had happened to Rachel? Who called you? And you know, what was your first reaction?
2: My sister had called me when I was at my job at about three thirty in the afternoon on a Friday. And it was it was odd, she sent me a text that just said, Call me 911. So I called her and she's like, Rachel has passed away. And her initial reaction was shock, and um like a tidal wave. I remember having to go leave to throw up. Uh, my coworkers clearly thought something was wrong and then I, I had left. I, I had figured at that point that maybe she had fallen and hit in her head or maybe she might, maybe my mother really did have a heart condition and she passed away of something like that. That was my, uh, it was our initial synopsis of what had happened, but really disbelief. It's hard to describe something <laughs> that, uh, That really rocks your world like that.
1: How did you learn that it wasn't something medical or something accidental, but something more sinister?
2: At about 10 o'clock that night, when the homicide department called us, then we knew something wasn't right. That it wasn't that she just fell and hit her head, that someone had killed her and they had thought someone had killed her.
1: And what went through your mind immediately when you were told that?
2: That they're wrong. <laughs> that who would I mean who who would want to do that to her? Rachel was so quiet and just kept to herself and was so kind. Like how do you no one would do that?
3: What did the scene and look they, like? And I hate to ask you that question, but I think it's very important when you're looking at the profile of who might be responsible. What did that scene tell investigators? Or what did it look like?
2: I've been working in healthcare at that point for thirteen years. I had never seen anything like that. I mean, the scene was, and there's blood everywhere from the ceilings through halfway through the living room, up the appliances. And it was everywhere. I was shocked when I heard it was just a hand wound and she wasn't stabbed to death because that's what it looked like.
3: Did there look to be any sort of signs of a struggle, you know, overturned chairs, tables, coffee tables, anything like that?
2: Well, everything was overturned because when the police come to investigate, they literally trashed the whole entire home. I mean, her bed was still flipped over. I mean, that's the part that's another thing. Like, if they're going to investigate, if they could at least be respectful, that would be helpful. Instead of seeing my sister's belongings just kind of thrown everywhere, her bed still flipped up. It was really frustrating. But not not the only sign of a struggle I saw, which no one can still explain to me of how this happened. So they said that she was hit from behind and she didn't fight back.
1: Rachel was trained in martial arts, so one could assume she knew how to protect herself. The neighbors also reported no barking dogs that night. That would point towards an unknown intruder. So does that mean
3: Rachel knew her killer? Her sister Sarah says Rachel recently overcame some major personal hurdles and growing pains
2: we became close again after our mother had died in 2012. Our parents were divorced and Rachel was raised by my grandmother and I was raised by my father. So my father is Rachel's stepfather. So Rachel was going to stand up in my wedding in August of 2014. So we were preparing for that and became decently close again. And she was such a light, warm, loving woman, but she had just she had lived a really rough life. There's no doubt about that. How so? Well, I mean, our mother was an alcoholic, a really bad alcoholic, uh, to the point where she couldn't take care of any of us girls. My mother would not give my father any leeway to take Rachel at all, but she gave my grandmother full custody. So my grandmother had custody of Rachel, and just having our mom in and out of our lives, I mean, life was pretty chaotic until she was about twelve, and then went to go live with with grandma, which, I mean, grandma's still alive. She's very very much here. She just does not want to be involved in any of this. It hurts her too much. She was a mom role up until our mother had left. Again, like, my mom was a severe alcoholic, so Rachel was the one getting us ready for school. My dad worked a lot of hours, so I mean, Rachel most times was the one taking care of us and feeding us and teaching ABCs you know, trying to really step in to any kind of caregiver role that she could at such a young age. And this started at around age five for Rachel. Which is I mean, I have a five year old now and I can't imagine him taking care of himself along anybody else. So I I can imagine how hard that was on her. But Rachel's just a very giving and loving person. I mean, even when we were kids and we would come to stay with my grandmother for the summer and for winter break and you know, Rachel was a cool teenager. <laughs> She would allow us to try on her prom dresses and wear her jewelry and hang out with her friends. Most teenagers would not allow their little sisters to engage in activities (laughs) with their social circle. But she really was very proud to have siblings and was very loving. And I, I really hope that, you know, I can teach my kids to be more like her in being so open and caring and really taking into consideration of what someone else might feel.
1: She turned her passion for animals into her profession, working at an animal shelter during the time of her murder.
2: It didn't make a lot of money, but she was able to bring her dogs to work with her, and that was really important to her. We had talked about her moving up here after my wedding. Her and my sister Kelsey were going to get an apartment together. And the trade-off is is that she'd be able to bring the dogs to my house to babysit the kids as a form of employment. I have um, a special needs son, so Rachel was planning on coming up here after the wedding.
1: Lately, I've been feeling more anxious than usual. And because of that, my friends and I, we spend a lot of time talking about taking care of ourselves before others. It's like they say on planes, put your mask on first before helping others. And
3: with that comes needed tools and therapy is one of them. Better help that's H-E-L-P, is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, or even live chat sessions with your therapist. And it's more affordable than in-person therapy. You know, you can find the perfect therapist that matches your needs and start working out life concerns in just under 48 hours.
1: We invest in so many unnecessary things in life. Mental health should be at the top of our list. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and Killer Jeans listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash killerjeans. That's betterhelp,
3: B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com slash killerjeans. Rachel was exploring a life change because of jolting news she discovered in her relationship. She was in an off-and-on-again relationship with someone for about eight years. The two lived together as well at certain times.
2: They started eating around 2010. Now, he was friends with her ex-boyfriend, and I think that's how all that got started. Jason had kind of been in the background for many years prior to that. And then they started dating off and on. And then they had moved in together about two years prior to her death.
1: The boyfriend's name has been well documented in the media, but we will use his first name only. Rachel's boyfriend was a man named Jason.
3: Early on, did investigators give indication, any indication that they felt it was somebody that Rachel knew? Or, you know, was it just a crime of circumstance or happenstance breaking and entering. Maybe somebody just came in to rob the house and something had happened. Or did they feel that it was somebody that she knew?
2: You know, and that was probably the hardest part of this whole ordeal is the the hope game. So the hope game started right away, the very first day that we met with investigators. And they already had their eyes set on Jason right away. That That wasn't even the question. It wasn't even something that wasn't said out loud. It was said out loud several times by Detective Williams and Detective Malone that two weeks, we're going to arrest them. Two weeks, we're going to arrest them. They came to the funeral. They, they Wait, are they, and,
1: are they telling you this? Yeah. <laughs> They're telling yes, you in was, two
2: weeks, we're going to arrest him? In 10 weeks. It's, 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 we're going to get an arrest. 10 weeks. Got to be him. And that's why they came to the funeral. 10 weeks. And so, Rachel, it couldn't have been just anybody because there's a lot of circumstances that point. It is someone that she knows. Those doors
3: were locked. And those dogs were not harmed. Jason, the man Rachel was dating, was in another relationship, seeing another woman at the same time as Rachel. Come to find out, that relationship had been going on for years. News surfaced that he proposed to this other woman. Rachel found out by finding their wedding registry.
1: Rachel was completely in the dark about the other woman. However, there were people around her who knew about the boyfriend's double life.
2: Her best friend, BJ, or one of her best friends that actually worked with at the kennel, apparently knew about this the whole entire time, knew Mari really well, and knew that they were together at the whole time she was dating Jason. I didn't find anything about Mari until after she had passed away. Tell me about South
1: Holland and how, you know, when you think about and what you indicated is Jason being on and off with Mari, we believe about 14 years. Is that right? Yeah. And then having a relationship with Rachel for about four in a fairly small town. One person that she worked with knew obviously didn't say anything. Paint that picture of the community in the area and her friends.
2: Well, I don't believe Mari lived in South Holland. I'm not exactly sure where she lived at the time. I thought it was more Palos Heights, which, I mean, Chicago, those suburbs sound small, but Chicago huge. It is gigantic. So I think that there would have been a really good way for them not to find out and for gossip if they don't hang out with the same crowd for not that not to get back to anybody. And her friend BJ is very, he is quite the odd duck. Well, and and me- I mean, I had to ask him why he didn't say anything or why he didn't alert anybody. And his response to that was he didn't think anyone would believe him.
3: Well, and tell us about about Rachel's friend circle. Who was in her tight group of friends that she confided in?
2: So Sean Smith and Callum Smith and Ellen. Oh my gosh, I cannot remember what her last name is. Those are her three main best friends. I still keep in contact with Sean and Callan. Sean and Callan were the ones that were always over there and Sean was actually the one that was at her house fixing that pipe on that Tuesday before she passed. And they used to hang out as like on double dates, like as a group often with Jason.
1: And what were their impressions of Jason and them as a
2: couple? You know, I don't really I don't really know. I mean, Jason to everybody's kind of was always sort of a sleazeball. Like you can tell he was lying. <laughs> About multiple things. Uh, yeah, if if no one knew about Mari, how what well, r- radars or red flags was he um, exuding for that? Probably the, always being broke, yet being a truck driver. I mean, I don't know if you know any truck drivers, but I know a couple of them, and they're never broke. They usually make pretty darn good money. But his excuse was is that he was taking care of his mom or funding his mom's medications. Who was dying of kidney failure. So he was always broken, mooching off my sister who barely made $9 an hour. And Rachel paid all the bills plus his, which is pretty incredible. And she was really, I mean, like down to the pennies every single month. And I think they saw that. So I think that in itself raised a lot of red flags.
3: When did Rachel, and maybe she didn't confide in you in this, but when did her relationship with Jason start to go downhill to the point where she broke up with him, right? About a week before she was found? Yeah, she found she found that wedding registry the week before. But they were
2: kind of already sort of on the outs before that. Um, I think around, gosh, probably January, they were starting to end things. Because that's when the conversation started of her moving up to Wisconsin with us after August.
3: I mean, I can't imagine, you know, yeah, there might be a little trouble in paradise, but then to find your boyfriend's wedding registry to another woman online, I mean, that's got to be absolutely devastating, even if you are on the outs.
2: It was devastating. It was super devastating for her. And to find out that that had been going on their whole relationship.
3: You know, Melissa, I don't know about you, but with all the styling and dyeing of my hair over the years and of course, as I get older, my hair has started to become thin and just doesn't feel as healthy, which is very upsetting to me to say the least. So before it gets too bad, I decided to take Nutrafol and do something about it.
1: 30 million women are impacted by thinning hair and a lot of my girlfriends, they just are constantly stressing out about it. Nutrafol has formulas that are clinically shown to improve hair growth and thickness
3: within months. What I love is that Nutrafol is physician-made to be 100% drug-free. They use medical-grade botanicals and effective dosages so you get the most reliable results. It's done by targeting the root causes of thinning, which are stress, hormones, environment, nutrition, and metabolism, all of which I know I struggle with.
1: Yeah, same. You know, you can grow thicker, healthier, luscious hair and support our show by going to Nutrafol.com and enter the promo code K-L-G-E to save $15 off your first month subscription. It's available to U.S. customers for a limited time. Oh, and
3: Melissa, plus there's free shipping on every order. So get your $15 off at Nutrafol.com and that's spelled N U T R A. F-O-L dot com. And the promo code again is K-L-G-E.
1: Okay, I want to go back to his career that he said he was driving semis. He never actually had a license to do so, right? Nope. And who discovered that he didn't have that CDL license?
2: I actually don't know. And now, it was discovered that he was only working at Lubels. I can't remember who made, well, he's sitting there saying, that.
3: he's sitting there saying, you know, we're supposed to be in a committed relationship with Rachel. And he obviously isn't if he's getting married, he says he is a truck driver yet. He doesn't have a CDL. I mean, do you think that, you know, Rachel found out all about this and finally just called it quits with Jason. And if, if Rachel was giving him money, I don't want to say this because I can't say it, but I'm going to say it. I mean, that's definitely motive to be yeah. very upset with Rachel if she's cutting him off.
2: Yeah. Well that, and you know, after she found out about the wedding rather she of going to Mari, cause I keep in mind, their wedding happened six weeks after she was killed. That the show went on. I mean, they, he got married. Yeah. And that's why, you know, I
1: just want to mention this. I, we found Jason, A few years ago when this story was first on our radar and we were investigating it and that was my first question to him is, you know, you got married to another woman a few weeks after Rachel's, you know, horrific death and he just looked at me and and said, I am what I am and I just keep replaying that in my head. What does that mean? You know, and I talked to Detective Malone about it. I am what I am. What does that mean? You know, just kind of like, I'm, I'm not empathetic. I, you know, I, I'm not going to feel what you expect me to feel. Or, you know, what does that mean? And he wouldn't say anything else. He just had two little dogs and, and walked off. Obviously very chilling and, and odd, but doesn't mean that he's a killer. Two months after Rachel's death, Her family says Jason married the other woman and turns out Rachel put him down as her sole beneficiary on her life insurance policy. Now, he told me a few years ago when we met and I tried to ask him a bunch of questions regarding this, that he had no knowledge of this insurance policy until she died.
3: And another odd turn in this unsolved case. Rachel had a neighbor upstairs One who told police he didn't hear any voices the day she died. Three years after her murder, that neighbor killed himself.
1: I would love for you to elaborate how Jason and the upstairs neighbor knew one another and how close they were. But from what I understand, the neighbor upstairs from Rachel did uh, commit suicide, and Detective Malone told me that there's no indication that he was involved. I
2: don't know if he was involved or they're just not saying exactly what he knew. He doesn't have to be directly involved. They have to have information on what's going on. And they had taken Jason and the Chuck, the, the guy that lived upstairs, had actually rode all the way to Texas together. In a car, like eighteen hours, <laughs> and we didn't find that out until after Chuck had died. so it's hard to tell us like, what the relationship is between Chuck and Jason. Well, you're and was dead, that Chuck. ever actually looked at? You know, I don't know if it was necessarily negative or dangerous towards Rachel, but I don't know if Chuck maybe knew something that he just wasn't saying anything, or maybe he had Jason confided in Chuck. Like I just, I just don't know. But it's an avenue that I feel like was never looked at. I want to talk about the prints and
1: Kelly is much better at forensics and, you know, Malone and I discussed it. She said his prints were everywhere because he lived there. He was there prior to, but after my question was the scene Mm -hmm. filled with blood everywhere Mm -hmm. were his prints anywhere within the entire region where the blood was. And, you know, if yes, can't they distinguish between His prints in her blood versus prints of someone who lives
3: there? Yes. There would be a way to say, like, if I grab this coffee mug and then blood goes on it, you can tell my prints were there first. But if there's blood on the coffee mug, then I grab it, it leaves a different indentation. So it would be that I grabbed it after the blood was there, meaning I was there when it happened or right after it happened. So you can do that with the fingerprints. And I'm also very curious because... Sarah and I'm sorry that the crime scene was was so horrific. Were there any shoe prints? Is is one of my biggest thing. If if the kitchen in the living room was so scattered with blood, there had to have been some sort of shoe print. um, Even if the person took a shower, which would indicate what the upstairs neighbor said was the water running. Right. Chances are, if you're going to step in it, then there. If you stepped in it, even just a little bit, you would leave a trail going out the door or out a window or or whatever. So maybe that is something though that law enforcement is holding close to their vest because it's something that maybe only the killer would know about
1: but obviously it's not traced back to him because if it were he'd be
3: that arrest would have happened in two weeks
2: yeah but we also don't know if they actually i mean was there a search warrant for his his house with mari was there a search warrant for their cars they actually searched their cars like these are things that we don't know if they actually did they search her house at all
1: right
3: because they very uh, very well could have had a shoe that was his and they just kind of dropped the ball Well, would also be you know if he says he was over there that evening if they interviewed him you know that day that they found her body well, okay jason we need your clothes you have to test the clothes That's you normal, know that he was wearing right. the night before let me take the shoes you were wearing the night before we need to see all these things because it sounds like if you are in a scene such as a violent as your sister's death was it's going to come back on you you know it's going to be very 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 difficult not to leave anything behind or take anything with you so there would be the transfer into his car right we have
1: to assume they did that because police work 101
3: right you know
2: right Um, well and they did take there were a couple of floor tiles missing vinyl tiles from her from the kitchen Yes, those were taken but the weird thing was is that so like she was killed on one side of the kitchen and the back door to get out was on the other side Now, there was a big smudge of blood on the curtain. And the potential
1: murder weapon is the center of many questions. Police have never confirmed what the weapon was.
2: Yes, there was a drain pipe that her friend Sean had fixed the Tuesday before she was killed. So it was about a couple of days prior, and he had left it on the counter. And from my knowledge, I don't know if it was ever recovered because they won't tell us. All they told us is that there's no murder weapon. Well,
1: they yeah they said they can't answer that, but Detective Malone did was forthcoming, which I thought was interesting about talking to a psychic about looking in the drainage pipe behind where they worked at uh, Lubel's, Yeah, and in case something was stashed there, but obviously no confirmation on if anything was found. But just the fact that following the lead of a psychic, which I thought well that was forthcoming for law enforcement to even admit something like that.
2: Yeah, you know, and I will have to say, I think Detective Malone, I really do think she cares.
1: Let's talk about games. For us, it's our
3: playtime when we need a well-deserved break. And June's Journey is the perfect game for us as true crime hosts because, as you know, we love to crack cases and be challenged with mysteries.
1: It is a visually beautiful game set in the roaring 20s where you play June Parker, an amateur detective finding clues while experiencing a movie-like story. And you know it It feels immersive while giving your brain a fun exercise
3: and you know what 30 million fans agree with me that this vivid storyboard stays stimulating with new cases to crack and mysteries to solve all along the way
1: so get ready to awaken your inner detective the suppressed sleuth in all of us june's journey is free to download on the apple app store or google
3: play Since law enforcement has been open to seeking out-of-the-box help, we spoke with Christopher Barber, known as a psychic detective who specializes in intuition research with respect to crime and forensics. He is not on this case, not hired by the family, and has no affiliation whatsoever except for being an expert in his field. We gave Chris a photo of Rachel and withheld all other information, including her name. I tasked you with two things. And number one was, you know, what could you tell me about her death, how she died, slash murder weapon? And the second one, can you sketch or give us details about the killer or killers? When I gave you that photo and you went and did your work on it, what did you get?
0: First thing that happened when I... When I looked at her photo, was a familiar feeling. It was a slight headache behind my eyes, almost like a, a migraine can feel, not, not major, but slight, and a slight pain like at the back of my neck. And also, something that doesn't happen, actually, you'd think it would happen more often, but something that uh, happened was I got this rush of this wave of being sick to my stomach, not, not to the point of getting sick, but just, it was obvious right in the pit of my stomach. Now the, the headache, neck ache situation does come up once in a while, almost like it's a, it's a form of empathing. When I've worked on cases, for instance, where someone died from some form of head trauma on cases where people were mutilated um, and their heads were cut off something involving the head or shot in the head it usually happens not not from being shot in the head but all the other types of head trauma like I just mentioned so that was so obvious to me even though it would have been maybe subtle to most people if they experienced it it was enough for me to comment on it and write it down you know in my notes and mention it to you so i felt there was a high probability we were dealing with head trauma and also that that rush of of like <gasps> and feeling a bit sick to my stomach i believe was most likely coming from the victim with the, with a the few seconds say, that she had perhaps to realize kind of what was happening or who was in her space or this isn't going to maybe go well and so that was my initial response to her touching Tapping, sketching, when I sketch, when I use my finger to smudge under a neck or a cheekbone. This is all activating our intuitive system, especially when we are focused on something like, like a case like this. So then I started to focus on your questions about how she died and, and a weapon. And I saw a lot of blood. This, this, to me, felt like there was a lot of blood there. And it seemed like looking at it the way I was perceiving it in my mind's eye while I was working with her photo, when you see flashes in, in your mind's eye, that would be called clairvoyance, old school way of saying it. It was like she was in two rooms. It was like perhaps I was seeing the room she's in in the photo. I don't know if that's a kitchen, but it was like I was in between a kitchen and the living room or a kitchen in a dining room or a kitchen in another room. And lots of blood. And in terms of the weapon, sometimes our intuitive system will see something that's the right shape, but it isn't necessarily what it is that we're, we, we want to settle on. So I'm careful to not jump to conclusions, but at first I saw what looked like something in the shape of a, uh, the top of a broomstick or maybe a small bat. And then it morphed into a pipe. But the pipe, for some reason, I don't know, looked like it had grooves, like circular grooves around the top or the bottom or both, where you'd screw it into another pipe, perhaps.
1: Now, mind you, Barber has no clue what case this is or details of it, not even her name. Yet he sensed a pipe was used. A pipe That has been the subject of many questions around her death, a pipe that a previous psychic alluded to South Holland police years prior and the missing pipe from the day Rachel had a friend over fixing her kitchen. As for the possible suspect, the psychic detective describes his
0: vision. A heavier male. It was a little hard for me to to settle on. Does he have just stubble? Does he have is he clean shaven? You know, because it seemed like his looks, you know, you could say this for many of us, our looks morph, but generally it was like, I'm not really sure what I'm going to get with this guy. I felt like he was known to the victim that I would be very surprised if he didn't need, he didn't need to medicate in order to exist, <laughs> whether that's prescription drugs or the legal drugs or both. And
3: why do you say that, Chris? What 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 feeling did you get to to make you say that?
0: Well, it was while I was sketching him and touching the actual sketch with my hand and getting the charcoal on my hand and touching and tapping and trying to shade the beard and underneath. It was I. It was. It's always like a little difficult to to sketch double chins. So I, I was having a little trouble with the double chin, and but I I I felt like oh, he's so dizzy and he's so, he's somebody that, I don't know if this would be a pathology of um, borderline personality disorder or something else, something that you'd need to take, take something in order to function well. I felt that there was perhaps some kind of a possible mental issue and, and sort of dizziness and like Like, this is a person where if I knew this person, I I wouldn't know what I was going to get when I saw them. Like, they'd almost be a different person tomorrow than they were today. And so sort of an unpredictable personality. Uh, That's just what I felt while sketching him. And also what is scary about humans and scary about a lot of killers is they can be decent people and come across, fairly, quote, normal and quieter and do nice things for people. But when they turn, it's very scary. And I feel I feel that about this person. I feel that about this person. And I felt it before I thought, before I reflected on it later when I wasn't technically working on it, I thought to myself, the level of blood that I saw and the level of anger you know, it's scary.
3: Barber went on to say he feels the killer is someone known to her. He also sketched a possible subject, but due to Rachel's death, still being an open and active investigation, we will not be releasing it at this time. Intuition is something he says we all possess. His has been heightened since he was a kid. Barber helped us explore Rachel's case at our request. When a case is cold, we feel all avenues and insight should be welcomed. Now, as for Rachel's family, do you think you'll ever get answers?
2: I haven't completely lost hope, but I'm I'm hopeful. I'm not going to hang everything I have on it. I'm hopeful. While
1: keeping her memory alive, Rachel's stepdad, Mark Richards, has his own way to be with her each day. Sarah, I'm sure your dad has talked about this with you, but when I sat with him, there was a brief interruption that almost brought me to tears. Tell me about 1037 at your dad's house.
2: That is the day that, or that is the exact time that she was pronounced deceased.
1: And how does your father memorialize that moment? Has he ever shared that with you?
2: Yes, because his alarm will still go off
1: today at 10.37. Every single day. Does he still have that set, do you know? Every day. It's powerful. It's very, very very moving and very powerful, and he's a great man.
2: He is. And you know what? I think that's probably the hardest part, is that they missed out on their future of reconnecting, I know Rachel loved my dad, and my dad's a good man, and he tried everything he could for her and, you know, and my mom. But, you know, unfortunately, they don't view men as equal parties of children, especially children that are not yours. We just missed out on being a real family for something that we've always wanted for so long.
1: Now, this family needs help to find Rachel's killer. Detectives say nobody has been ruled out as a suspect, and this is an open investigation. Jason has cooperated with police, and the upstairs neighbor was ruled out as a person of interest before his untimely death.
3: At this point, seven years later, detectives are now re-examining DNA using advances in technology, hoping for a new lead or genetic direction to chase. If you have any information into the death of Rachel Galbraith, please contact the South Holland, Illinois Police Department. Anonymous tips can be submitted on their website, southholland.org.
1: Thank you for listening. Please follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Killer Jeans, the podcast.
0: Do you want to know what it's like to hang out with MS-13 in El Salvador? How the Russian Mafia fought battles all over Brooklyn in the 1990s. Or well, what about that time I got lost in the Burmese jungle hunting the world's biggest meth lab? Or why the Japanese Yakuza have all those crazy dragon tattoos? I'm Sean Williams. And I'm Danny Gold, And we're the hosts of the Underworld Podcast. We're journalists that have travelled all over, reporting on dangerous people and places. And every week, we'll be bringing you a new story about organised crime from all over the world. We know this stuff because we've been there, we've seen it, and we've got the near misses and embarrassing tales to go with it. We'll mix in reporting with our own experiences in the field and we'll throw in some bad jokes while we're at it. The Underworld Podcast explores the criminal underworlds that affect all of our lives, whether we know it or not. Available wherever you get your podcasts.